We'll be in Isaiah chapter 55 today, so you can be turning there in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there are a handful out in the lobby entryway. You can grab one, take it home if you'd like, or you can just grab your phone and search Isaiah 55. It's a really long book, a little more than halfway through the Bible, so it should be fairly easy to find. Uh, our typical preaching pattern here, as you know if you, if you come here often, is that we uh, take up a book of the Bible and preach all the way through it. And so we spent a long time in the Gospel of Mark in the last year. In the last few weeks, we've done something a little different coming toward the end of a year, talking about our core values, the things that we, we really value and care about and think that our church needs to do really well. And next week, we'll get back into a sermon series through a book of the Bible. The book of Esther is where we'll be this summer, which I'm really excited about and looking forward to. But this morning, I thought it would be appropriate on this occasion to preach sort of a one-off sermon on Isaiah 55, and I hope it fits the occasion well. I'll read the entire chapter. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David, since I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. So you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you. For the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will, it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. And this will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. There's several longings that every human heart has. And there's two of them that this text points us to. The first is the longing for personal satisfaction. We all long and desire to be satisfied, to have everything that we need, to be happy, to have our desires filled, to be content in life. The second longing is the longing for global renewal, to look around at the world and see a world that is at peace, to see people getting along, not fighting with each other, for everybody to have everything that they need. And we not only long for these things, but we work for them. Most of us work for our personal satisfaction first, and if we reach a certain measure of contentment, we start working toward global renewal. Uh, some saints put it in the other order, uh, good for them. But despite all of our longings and all of our efforts at pursuing these things, we have to look around and be honest with ourselves and recognize that our efforts are not working. If we look around at the world and instead of global renewal, we see global chaos. 
We see wars and, and rumors of wars. We see wars of the kind that, that maybe we thought we were past in a global society, like the war between Russia and Ukraine. Or, or the, the fear and the anxiety of potential violence, like in, in China and Taiwan, and the fear that, that if these things happen, that, that lots of nations around the world might get involved and we might see the kind of global conflict that we haven't seen since World War II. Just a few years ago, we witnessed a pandemic. It was unlike anything we had seen in over a century. We thought those, those sorts of things don't happen anymore. We continue to hear climate scientists warn of an impending ecological crisis passing some point of no return, and we, we look around at home and we see domestic terrorism and, and mass shootings. And if we're honest, we, we just have to say, like, our efforts at global renewal are not working. It's, it's really chaotic. And then we search for personal satisfaction, but instead, what do we find? We find that we're lonely, we're anxious, we're depressed, we're discontented. Just this week, there was, there was a new, uh, new data released from Gallup, which is one of the most significant polling agencies uh, in the world, and they said that, that 29% of adults have been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lives. 18% are currently under a depression of diagnosis. That's up from 20% and 10% just eight years ago. And, and that only refers to diagnoses. That's not referring to, to the many, many people who feel depressed and have not talked to anybody about it, haven't seen somebody about it. Life expectancy in the United States is decreasing. From the mid-20th century through the, the 20-teens, uh, life expectancy continued to rise, and, and during that time rose more than 10 years, but it started to plateau in the, in the 2000s, and by 2019, the average life expectancy in the U U.S. had decreased for three consecutive years. That's, that's prior to the pandemic. And life expectancy is decreasing year after year. Many people point to what we call deaths of despair, drug overdoses, alcoholism, suicide, as the reason for this decrease in life expectancy. We're, we're so despairing as a society that it's shortening our lifespans. So if we look around and we're honest, we have to say that our, our efforts for global renewal and personal satisfaction are not working. Yet we continue to insist that, that if our political party just won the next election... Right, that, that things around the world would get better. We continue to tell ourselves that, that if I just get that little life change, that raise or that new job or that boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or child, that things will be better and I'll be satisfied. But we know, don't we, underneath the surface, that it's, it's fool's gold. It's not going to work. Our efforts are futile. And it's into these futile efforts that God offers an invitation. Stop working fruitlessly for these two things. And come to me and let me give them to you for free. We see this, both of these promises, the promise for global renewal and personal satisfaction in this text. In verses 12 through 13, we read of the promise of global, even cosmic renewal. Isaiah says, The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. Old Testament scholar Alec Matir says, the ultimate reality that God is promising here is a new earth, creation released from the bondage of corruption. The curse has been removed and all creation explodes in fresh joy and praise. The curse he's referring to is the curse of Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve, the first humans, bring sin into the world, 
God responds and their consequences occur. And not only is their relationship with God broken, not only is their relationship with one another broken, but their relationship with the very earth they were given to steward is broken. And God says in this curse that instead of bringing forth fruit and vegetation and, and beauty, the earth will fight against you and it will bring thorns and thistles. And Isaiah 55 is promising the exact opposite. It's promising the curse will be undone, and instead of thorns and thistles, the earth will bring forth fruit and vegetation and beauty and beautiful things, evergreens that will last forever. Verses 1 and 2, we see the invitation to personal satisfaction. Come, everyone who is thirsty. You know he's not, he's not just talking about physical thirst. He's talking about the, the deep thirst of the soul. He's saying, is, is your soul thirsty? Is your is your, your heart hungry? Well, come, buy what I have to give you for free. It doesn't cost you anything. Come, receive it, eat and drink and be filled, be satisfied without working for it. Before I was a preacher and before I had children, I used to get annoyed at preachers who would talk about their children so much as sermon illustrations. And then I became a preacher and had children and realized that they're like walking sermon illustrations. <laughs> or crawling sermon illustrations, or what have you. And, and one of the many sermon illustrations, really it has felt in the moment like God preaching a sermon to me, is the experience of feeding my children when they first start to eat solid foods like mushed up bananas and, and purees and these sorts of things. And this, I have this experience over and over again, like right now, Everett, he's getting a little better at using his hands so we can start to hand him things. But he'll be sitting in his high chair and I'll be like holding this pouch of you know, whatever, and all he has to do is just sit there and open his mouth and I will deliver the food directly into his mouth. But what does he do instead? He flails his arms, and he tries to grab it, and he knocks it out of my hands, and he's like squeezing the pouch all over the place, and 75% of it ends up on his face or on my face, and very little of it actually gets into his mouth. All he has to do is sit still and let me feed him. And in those moments, I have felt like God is often saying to me, Taylor, this is just like you. Like, just be still. Stop grasping the things that I have promised, I will give you. That's God's promise here. Come, if you're thirsty, come to the water. You don't even have to pay anything for it. You don't have to work for it. I will give it to you. God promises to give us personal satisfaction, and he promises global renewal, but how does it work? It works through God's covenant and through God's word. First, God's covenant, verses three through five. God says he's going to make this covenant on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David. David, King David, is probably the most well-known figure in the Bible besides Jesus. He's, he's the most mentioned person in the Bible besides Jesus because we all know the story of David and Goliath, right? God's people, Israel, fighting this battle against their neighbors, their enemies, the Philistines. And the Philistines send this giant guy out named Goliath, and he starts taunting them. And he says, look, let's dispense with all the bloodshed. Let's just make this a one-on-one -on -one thing. Okay? You send your best fighter out, and I'll take him on, and whoever wins, like that side gets to take the other side as slaves and, and this, that, and the other. And none of the Israelites will fight him because he's huge, and they're terrified of him. And David comes up just to, to bring provisions to his brothers who are in the battle, and he sees what's going on, and he says, what's, what's the deal? Why aren't you guys fighting this guy? And they're like, well, look at him. He's like 10 feet tall. And, and David's like, yeah, but we have God on our side. I'm not going to be scared of him. I'll fight him. David's just this little shepherd boy, and, and so the king tries to put all of his armor on David, and David's like, this doesn't fit. Look, I've got this slingshot. Let me go get a few stones, and I'll handle things. And sure enough, the first stone hits Goliath in the temple, and he falls over dead. But before Goliath, uh, 
David was working as a shepherd boy, and Samuel, the, the prophet of God's people, was, was called by God to go and anoint a new king. And he said, you're going to go to this guy Jesse's house, and it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel says, can you bring out your sons so I can tell you which one's going to be the king? And he goes through them, of course, starting with the oldest and working all the way down to the youngest. And with each one, God says, no, that's not him. No, that's not him. No, that's not him. And Samuel's like, there's got to be some mistake. Is, th- is there another son? And his dad's like, well, there's, there's David, but he's like the runt. He's like out back with the sheep. And, and Samuel's like, get him. And, and he gets him. And sure enough, this is the one who is, who is to be the king. And God says at that point that man is different than God. Man looks at outward appearances and God looks at the heart. And so David is anointed as king and then he rules and reigns as the greatest king in Israel's history. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes his promise to David. It's a covenant. And he promises him, I am going to have someone from your lineage on the throne forever and ever. And there will be someone who will come from your offspring who will reign on your throne forever. And he will reign in a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And we get to the Gospels, the New Testament, and what's one of the titles for Jesus? The son of David. Jesus is the one that God promised to David. He is the new and better David. Like David, Jesus was rejected and despised by men. David wasn't considered because he was a little shepherd boy, but Jesus was rejected all the way to the cross. Like David, Jesus slew a giant, but a much greater giant than Goliath. He killed the giants of sin and the devil and death. And like David, Jesus didn't use the weapons of human warfare to kill his giant. He went to a cross. Rather than some sort of political insurrection, he died to bring in his kingdom. Like David, Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. But now, look at verse 5. He says, you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you. The kingdom of God is no longer specific to the nation of Israel. It includes people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. Here's God's promise in Isaiah 55, God's covenant. Come to me, verse 3, through Christ and you will live. Come to me through Christ and you will live. Jesus Christ is the king who died so that you could live. He was the one who was near to God the Father and yet who was cast off so that you could be brought near. Jesus Jesus did not need global renewal. The Son of God was in heaven with his Father. There was nothing there that needed to be renewed, yet he left there and came to earth so that he could bring you this renewal. The Son of God had full satisfaction at the right hand of the Father. There was nothing that Jesus needed, and yet he he came to earth and took up human nature and lived life among us so that we could have the satisfaction that he had always had. And if you come to God through him, you will get it. That's God's covenant. The second reason that this all works is God's word. Verses 8 through 11, we see this. God says here that he is different than us in three ways. His thoughts, his ways, and his word. And there's a lot here that I don't have time to dig into this morning, but here's the heart of it. Is that unlike our word, God's word is effective. Unlike our word, God's word accomplishes exactly what God intends for it to do. How many times have you wished that you could speak something into existence? Perhaps on on your way to church this morning, getting your kids ready, you wish that you could speak something into existence. Or at your job or in a relationship, you you wish that you could speak something into existence. That's exactly what God does. Verses 10 and 11. 
Just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. God's word does exactly what God intends for it to do. God spoke his creation into existence in the beginning. He has spoken through his son, the living word, and he still speaks through what he has spoken, the written word, the scriptures. And so when God says, verses 12 and 13, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided and the mountains and hills will break into singing before you, when he says, verse one, come everyone who's thirsty to the water and buy without silver, come buy and eat, he means it. And it's 100% certain. It's a guarantee because God's word actually produces what God says. So the question for us, the question for you and me is, how do we get in on this? Like, how do we, how do we get to experience and taste and see the satisfaction and the, the global renewal that God promises? It's in the very center of the chapter, verses 6 and 7. As I read, just note the verbs. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. Just as an an aside, notice that God does not say to tamp down your desires for personal satisfaction and global renewal. Not one bit. God does not say to tamp down your deep desires for satisfaction and meaning and purpose, happiness, joy. I just finished reading a book this week called Cloud Cuckoo Land, which, despite the silly-sounding name, is a really fascinating novel written by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And uh, it's about the, the preservation of this story throughout different times in history, dating all the way back to the 1500s into today, and they're preserving this ancient Greek uh, novel. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize that, that there's a choice being offered both to the characters and to you as the reader. And it's all about desire. And the choice is basically either, either you can, can retain this naturally human longing and passion and feeling of desire for something, but only get partial satisfaction. Or you can have full satisfaction, but it comes at the cost of laying down that feeling of desire. So either, either you let go of your desires, and therefore you're, you're satisfied, or you can retain them, but you won't ever get the full satisfaction that you're longing for. And I, I just thought as I finished this book, like... The, the promise of God in Isaiah 55, the promise of Christian, Christianity, cuts across that false dichotomy. And it says, keep your desires. Intensify them if you can. Fan them into flame and then go to the one being, the one source that can actually fill up all of those desires and can do so forever and ever and ever because he is infinite. God says, keep your desires and bring them to me and they will be fulfilled forever and ever. And the invitation to do this is what we call as Christians repentance and faith. Repentance simply means turning. And and there's probably not a word in the Christian vocabulary that has a, a worse reputation than the word repent. But it's actually a beautiful word. The word, again, just means to turn around. It's not not an angry demand. It's a compassionate invitation from a compassionate God who looks down at our futile attempts to fill up our longing on money and love and power and politics and who lovingly, seeing that they're not working, invites us to stop, 
Stop trying to fill up your desires in those things. John Calvin points out that, that this is another way that God is unlike us. God, he says, is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive. When we think that God is like us, mean and angry and vengeful, we dare not approach him. We flee from him as an enemy and therefore are never at rest. But when we see that, that God is infinitely compassionate, that, it, that his call to repentance is not an angry demand, but a gracious and loving invitation, we're drawn to him. You say, okay, Taylor, but he's, he's calling us wicked and sinful in verse 7. That still sounds a little bit angry. What's up with that? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make a couple comments that I don't have time to back up. So if you want to press me on them, we're having coffee and muffins downstairs after the service. And you can do that. Um, God is not being angry when he talks about wickedness and sin. He's, he's just telling the truth. He's not being mean to us. Uh, the, the essence of sin in the Bible, like the, the heart of sin, is another word for it is idolatry. And it, idolatry is when we take our deep desires for satisfaction, for meaning, for purpose, for, for all these things, justice, and we look to some other source besides God to meet those desires finite sources trying to, to meet an infinite desire. And when we do that, when we sin in that way, we will inevitably mistreat other people and inevitably give worship to things other than God. Just, just one quick example, the way that sin leads to wickedness. If you think that, that your deep longing for satisfaction will be filled up in a romantic relationship, what will happen? Uh, one, you will view other people who you are attracted to as objects created for your satisfaction. And that will cause you to mistreat them. And then, God forbid, they ever break up with you or, or leave you or abandon you, and you will hate them. You'll despise them because they took away your only hope at satisfaction. Sin or idolatry or the, the desire to fill up our desires in something other than God will always lead us to, to be wicked to other people. So God's just, just calling it like it is. And he calls us to repent from that, to turn from that. And faith is the other side of the repentance coin. Faith, trust, allegiance, reliance on God. Again, God is saying, having repented, having turned from all of your futile attempts at finding personal satisfaction and global renewal, turn to me through Christ, and I promise you, I promise you with my effective and powerful word that I will give you what you are longing for. In part now, in full in the future. Now, why this passage for this occasion? Why preach Isaiah 55 on our, our church's first birthday? One, because I read it every Sunday. Uh, if you ever glance at me during the last chorus or verse or chorus of the last song that we sing before I come up here and see that I'm opening my Bible, you might think that I'm running through my sermon notes one more time, and I'm actually reading Isaiah 55, which this morning it so happened that that also meant running through my sermon notes one more time. You might think that somebody who would sign up to be a pastor, sign up to preach week in and week out, would not need much external confidence. Like that we would be pretty self-driven, self-motivated, self-confident to be able to just get up here and do this every week. But in my experience, and in the experience of most preachers that I know, that could not be further from the truth. We, we come up here with fear and trembling Knowing, if we, if we have our wits about us, knowing that I cannot produce anything that I want to produce through my preaching. I cannot get up here and, and preach and speak in such a way that will make people who are not Christians become Christians. 
I cannot get up here and, and cause broken families to come back together. I cannot get up here and free people from addictions, bring people to repentance. I cannot do it. And so I need this external confidence. And, and reading Isaiah 55 every Sunday is this reminder of God saying to me, look, I'm not putting you up there to say your words. I'm putting you up there to say my words. And because my word always produces exactly what I want it to, insofar as your preaching is just telling people my word, it can't fail. Like you can't lose if you, if you just preach God's word. It will always produce exactly what he wants it to produce. And so when I thought about what to preach today, it seemed appropriate to just tell you that this is what I rely on every week before I preach. But the second reason is because this is all that we have to offer the world. This beautiful story in John chapter 6 is one of the, the rare good moments for the Apostle Peter in the Gospels. Um, Jesus has given this hard teaching to crowds, and they all leave him upset. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he's like, look, everybody's leaving. This is a good off-ramp if you want to go to now's your chance. And Peter, again, this rare moment of insight says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. What else are we going to offer people? Christ alone has the words of life. This, the Bible about Christ has the words of life. So it's, it's God's word that we have to offer people. And that's what we've done for a year. And that's what we're going to keep on doing. We're not going to turn to gimmicks. This isn't going to be a church that's going to offer you life hacks. Uh, you're not going to come here and be promised health and wealth and prosperity. What you're going to get is God's powerful and effective word and the covenant and promises of God and the invitation. Come to God through Christ and live. Father, we thank you for this invitation.